You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Sanam Zahidi, your host for today's episode, which is another episode in our in-depth review series, where we have in-depth conversations with esteemed faculty from around the world. Our focus for today's discussion is on migraine headaches and nerve decompression surgery. I'm very excited to introduce our very esteemed guest, Dr. Jeffrey Janis. He's a professor of plastic surgery, surgery, neurology, and neurosurgery departments at The Ohio State University. He's also chief of plastic surgery at university hospitals. He's the past president of both American Society of Plastic Surgery and American Council of Academic Plastic Surgeons. And it's also worth noting that he was the youngest president in the history of both societies. He's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of PRS Global Open and the current president of the Migraine Surgery Society. Professor Janice, welcome to the Loop Podcast. Thank you. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your journey into plastic surgery and the Migraine Surgery Society? I'm happy to tell you whatever you want or need to know. I don't know that I uh, have too much to share, except that everything was by accident. Nothing was by design. I certainly didn't know that I wanted to go into plastic surgery when I was born, like many other people do somehow. And I definitely couldn't get in nowadays with as competitive as it is. But I'm grateful to be in plastic surgery and honored to be here today. You know, I I will just give one piece of advice maybe to the listeners, which is life is about opportunity and choice. And uh, that's what you're striving to do. Sometimes you know what you want to do. Sometimes you don't. But uh, keep your eyes open. Keep your mind open. Keep your ears open. Listen more than talk and uh, be open to new experiences. And you never know where the path will follow. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And I'm sure we have listeners out there who are interested in leadership roles in the society or in academics. And do you have any advice for them, especially considering that you were the youngest president for both the societies that we mentioned? What do you have in terms of recommendations for the younger generation who might face criticism for not having as much experience when they're dealt with those roles? You know, I I think that everything, uh, again, is, is by accident. I, when I first became interested in plastic surgery, it was walking down a hallway on a Saturday night at 10 p.m. as a third-year medical student, and I, for no reason, stopped. The bathrooms were to my left. The water fountain was to my left. There was nobody in front of me, nobody behind me. I had my short little white jacket on, and for no reason at all, I just said in a bare whisper out loud, plastics. It's a crazy story. It is not a sexy story. It is a true story. And that's kind of how I decided to go into plastic surgery. And as I went through plastic surgery, I never thought I would go into academics. And the reason why I went into academics was by accident, because my chair, Dr. Rorick, had left me a sticky note in my mailbox when we used to have mailboxes and told me to write a paper on male rhinoplasty. And that came on a Friday afternoon. And my rotation started with him on Monday morning. And I read the sticky note and spent all weekend in the library next to the copier with my copy card, because of course, nothing was electronic. And I was in the library researching every article that I could find. And on Monday at 7 a.m., I walked into the surgeon's lounge and I handed the CME paper to Dr. Rorick. And right then, in a split second, literally a split second, I realized what my mistake was because he looked at me and there was just a moment's hesitation. And that's when I realized that it didn't specify the deadline. It didn't specify the time. It just said to do it. 
And then I understood my mistake. My mistake was, is that I stayed up all night for two nights in a row on a weekend and handed him a paper. And just the look in his eye, he didn't say anything to me, was a bit of a surprise. And what, of course, was the next thing? He assigned me three more CMEs. Uh, And uh, one of them was on xanthalasma. One of them was on transcutaneous approaches to orbitozygomatic fractures. The other one was on otoplasty. A week later, I handed him three CMEs. And this became a game of essentially academic chicken because I'm not the smartest or the strongest, but I I pride myself on my stamina. I will outlast anyone. And I'm not going to let anybody get the best of me. I will hold my breath longer than anybody else. So for the next two months on rotation, we went back and forth. And by the end of the rotation, I'd published nine or at least submitted nine papers. And two weeks after that, he offered me a job to stay on faculty. I was a PGY4 at the time. I had no intention of going into academics. I had no history of research, none. I had done a poster presentation my first year of medical school on, on why respiratory rate shouldn't be a vital sign when everybody writes down the same number, basically 18. And so that was my only research experience. And so I want the listeners to know that, you know, and and at the time, you know, I was hired on actually not even as an assistant professor, but an assistant instructor, because they wanted a three-year deal for me to make me profitable, quote unquote. And I said, no, I'm moving back to Ohio. I'll sign a one-year deal. And so I stayed down there for nine one-year deals saying every year I'm leaving and every year I ended up staying. And so there's my career in academics in one minute or less. And so there's my career in plastic surgery in one minute or less. And so my career in in leadership is just by showing up. I volunteered actually, uh, well, I was at a uh, course called Leadership Tomorrow that turned into Pathways to Leadership, and then it turned into other leadership development for ASPS. But the earliest version was a weekend course. And as a resident, I went to it. And uh, afterwards, one of the rewards was you got put on a committee or a task force. I got put onto a task force called the Membership Strategies Task Force. It was the only task force slash committee I was a part of, and I just made sure to show up. I was the youngest person in the room. I didn't know anybody. I was intimidated. I was afraid to speak because I didn't want to look stupid. And interestingly, people wanted to know my opinion because I was that demographic. I was a resident. They wanted to hear from a person in that demographic because they wanted to know membership strategies on how to appeal to that demographic. So I guess in that little microcosm, that little world, I guess I had the comfort level of nobody else in the room was a current resident at the time. So I felt like, okay, that's solid ground that I could stand on that. I know what it's like because I'm living through it. And I just kept raising my hand for additional volunteer opportunities. And because I was able to work with that particular task force, other people on that task force were thinking of me and suggesting me for other committees. And that's how it all got started. It all got started by just showing up and not being afraid to participate. I had no designs on leadership. I've never had designs on leadership. You ask me, what's my five-year plan now? I have no idea. Ask me when I interviewed. I still didn't have any idea. I still don't know what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. I'm just telling you that not everything has to be by design, by plan, with this huge vision that you have in mind. You just show up, you participate, you live in the moment. You do your best, you try hard, you work hard, and you care about people and you care about patients. And that's how it all works. And the rest of it just kind of falls into place. So I don't have any other advice except show up, participate, and don't be afraid to speak. And of course, listen, but don't don't feel nervous about 
uh, not having a plan or not having a path. It doesn't always work out like that. No, that's great advice. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to bring us back to the topic that we're here to discuss, migraine surgery. For our audience who might not be as familiar with migraine management, can you walk us through some of the traditional treatments for migraines and the history of migraine surgery and how it came about? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, uh, this is a very common problem. It's actually more common than asthma and diabetes combined. And uh, for your listeners out there who don't know, 18% of women uh, and 6% of men in the United States have migraines. And as a matter of fact, one in four households either has somebody uh, who's got migraines or knows somebody, and it affects uh, everybody. It doesn't just affect that person who has migraines. Um, every time I see a new patient in clinic, there's uh, always somebody sitting in the visitor chair, at least when we were allowed to have visitors, you know, at one point in time, um, because this doesn't affect just one person. It affects everyone who loves and supports that person as well. And this costs a lot of work days lost, a lot of inefficiencies, a lot of uh, doctor's visits, emergency department visits, prescription medication costs, et cetera. And so this is a big problem, not just in the United States, but in the world. And so even if you look at lifetime cumulative incidents, 43% of all women have had at least one migraine headache. And so this is common. Again, it's a common problem. And the way that we all learned about this in medical school, even to this day, is that this is a central nervous system problem. This is centrally mediated, uh, cortical spreading depression, substance P, CGRP, et cetera. And therefore, it's a medical issue and it gets medically managed. But when you look at traditional treatments, um, actually a third of patients are not completely helped by traditional medication regimens. Some of these medications don't work to eliminate headaches, but to mitigate, let's say, frequency, intensity, or duration. Um, some of them are not able to be used in certain circumstances, for instance, pregnancy. Again, this is more common in women than men, which is why I'm suggesting this. But I will tell you that, you know, my wife, for instance, has migraines. And when she was pregnant, we have three kids. The most she could take was acetaminophen. And I will tell you, that's not going to cut it uh, for a mind-splitting headache when you feel like your eyeball is going to pop out of your head. Acetaminophen doesn't work in that situation, but there are black box warnings around some traditional medication uh, treatments for this. The other thing to look at is when you look at the laundry list of potential preventatives and abortives, again, I'm talking about kind of classes of medications that are commonly used. There's a laundry list. And some of them are used for other things, calcium channel blockers, antidepressants, anti-seizure medications, antipsychotics, et cetera. Anytime you see a laundry list of treatments, then it clearly means that there's not one right way to treat it. Otherwise, all of us would be using one thing and that one thing would work every time for every patient. And simply put, that is not the case. It reminds me a lot of keloids, you know, in plastic surgery, because if you look at the list of possible treatments for keloids, it's again, a laundry list, which means we don't know the one right way to treat keloids. So with that analogy being said, and for all of these reasons stated, just the number of patients who have this problem, uh, how this problem is incompletely addressed with current traditional therapies, what are the other options? And, you know, my patients, I call them kitchen sink patients because they've tried everything in the kitchen sink. They've seen a whole host of doctors. They've tried a pharmacy full of medications, uh, some of which have side effects, all of which cost money, even if you still have insurance in the form of co-pays. They've tried a list of alternative forms of treatment, including biofeedback, menthol patches, acupuncture, massage therapy, craniosacral therapy, nerve blocks, 
Botox, infusions, et cetera. I mean, there's literally a, a lot of rocks to look under. And surgery is one of those last rocks that people look under. I am not here to suggest to you or your listeners that this is a first-line treatment for patients who you know, get a couple of migraines a month and they take a pill and it goes away. Those aren't the, the, the patients that are in my practice. Those aren't the types of patients that I think would be appropriate for this type of, of treatment. Rather, you know, these are more for the patient who has tried and failed traditional treatments and their neurologist, which by the way, I only see patients that are referred by a board certified neurologist. And I work very closely and collaboratively with them. And I think the multidisciplinary approach makes a huge difference. You got to make sure these patients have the diagnosis before you treat them. And that's not my profession. That's their profession. So when they carry the official diagnosis and have tried and failed traditional treatments, that's when they're referred to me rather than let's say pain management or, or some other, or maybe they're, they're just not referred out because there's nothing else left in the bag of tricks for the neurologist to do. And they don't know what to do with those patients. That's where I come in and say, give me those patients. Let me see if I can help them. And while you can't help everyone, and I'm not, not here to suggest that you can, you can help a lot. And that's why I think this is a very important topic and one I'm glad you're discussing. Thank you. Um, actually, I've I've heard you say this before, where the neurologist should refer to you the patient that they've tried everything on and it's failed. But my question is, if the if it's working and a patient has chronically been on medication for for migraine surgery, why not expand the surgery to those patients as well, so they don't have to take a pill for the rest of their lives? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I'm suggesting is, is that that's a great way to start out your relationship with neurologists, because that's one of the biggest questions that I get is, where are the patients, number one? And the answer to that is, they're already there. You know, just take a look at the face sheet of any patient that you see in clinic that includes their past medical history. And you may be surprised until you are aware through a podcast like this, that these patients are already in your practice. Even the patient that you were seeing, you know, for other reasons, a breast reduction, a, a facelift, abdominal wall reconstruction, whatever these patients are coming in to see you for, and you notice migraines as part of their past medical history, you can get into that a little bit more with them and offer them maybe some treatment where that option is a legitimate option. So the non-confrontational way of how you get started is to align yourself with a board-certified neurologist so that when they have these patients that they don't know what to do with, that you represent an option for them. It helps everybody, most especially the patient. Now, nobody loves to take medications. Nobody does. I mean, I don't like to take medications. And we all know that compliance with medications decreases with the number of times that you have to take a medication and the number of medications that you take. So in your example, yeah, absolutely. When you have a situation where a patient has been on chronic medications, and like I said, some of those medications have side effects. I have no affiliation with any of these uh, companies, I have no affiliation with any of them, no conflicts of interest, et cetera. So I'm not here to get into that. But a lot of these have side effects that, you know, they, the patients call it brain fog, drowsiness and inability to concentrate. So even if they were working, some of these side effects are extremely undesirable. And so could there be an option where you basically go through, let's say a nerve decompression surgery and get yourself tapered or weaned off of some of these chronic medications? And so those are, that's another perfect demographic for a surgery like this and another legitimate reason uh, to, to recommend the surgery. Awesome. Thank you. Now, can you explain a little bit more some of the most common trigger points for migraine surgery? Yeah. So the common trigger points are going to be four 
uh, main ones. We'll just kind of summarize them into the periorbital, the temple, the neck, and the nose. Now, those are generic, and there are, of course, named nerves that go into each one of those categories. And each one of those zones can have multiple nerves in them. So for instance, the periorbital region would be like your supraorbital and supratrochlear nerve. Your temple region, for instance, would be zygomaticotemporal branch of the trigeminal and auriculotemporal. The neck would include things like the greater occipital, third occipital, and lesser occipital. And the nose are branches of the sphenopalatine ganglion. So, you know, a lot of these nerve branches are, are branches of the trigeminal nerve system. Um, and uh, again, there are connections between the central and peripheral nerve system. So this was even published uh, in journals like Headache by neurologists, where they found uh, uh, filamentous nerve connections that go through cranial sutures, connecting the dura of the central nervous system with the peripheral nervous system. So there are even anatomical reasons why there are connections between the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system, because you know, especially early on, people were asking, how can nerve decompression surgery affect uh, what has been historically known as a central nervous system problem? Like we're not talking about brain surgery. We're not, not talking about spinal cord surgery. We're talking about peripheral nerves. So how, how are these related? How can they be connected? And it's actually even through the neurology literature that we've been able to discover that. The other thing is that some of these patients, they may have a, a diagnosis that mimics migraines that looks very much like migraines, but may not actually be migraines, maybe nerve compression. There are patients who can get headaches uh, post-traumatically, like after, let's say, a car accident or something like that. Um, there are some patients who have genetic predisposition to migraines. And there are neuralgias, for instance, supraorbital neuralgia, occipital neuralgia. Again, the, uh, you have to be very careful. These are different headaches than migraines. Uh, different headaches, you know, the nerve compression, but they can be impacted by nerve decompression surgery. And we've have, you know, studies that show that. So at the end of the day, I think, again, the take-home point is work with neurologists and represent a nice alternative to some patients. Uh, since you brought up the neurologist, that was going to be my next question. So great lead way. Do you have the neurologist perform the Botox injections? And then do you repeat them in your clinic for the trigger sites? Or do you just have, go over with them what they need to do in terms of the Botox injections? So there's no right answer here for the listeners out there. Again, I have no affiliation with, uh, let's say, Allergan who makes Botox. Okay. But I mentioned Botox because it is actually an on-label FDA approved indication for that drug. It was approved in October of 2010, and it was approved for chronic migraines. And chronic migraines are defined as 15 migraine headaches per month or more. Uh, so that's the on-label indication. When this came out, more neurologists were using Botox to treat migraines. And they follow what's called the preempt trials, which were published trials that led to the FDA approval and shows a 31-point injection pattern. So if you go to FDA.gov and you look it up, you'll see like a little cartoon of a head. It's got 31 X's on it in a headband-like pattern around the head, over the top of the scalp, down the neck, across the shoulders. And when I look at you know a graphic or a cartoon like that, I say to myself, well, there's not nerves underneath every one of those 31 X's. So why inject so much Botox? You know, two, three vials of Botox, 31 injection, injections in each patient. I mean, the studies show that clearly it works. 
Um, but my question is, is why do you need all of those injections? Why do you need all of those, that Botox? Now, I know plenty of people who will, to answer your question, just use the neurologist injected Botox as a legitimate test for surgery. As a matter of fact, Dr. Guyron, uh, who was the pioneer of this field, you know, he's always worked very closely with neurologists uh, and he would have his neurologists routinely perform Botox. What I've looked into and published on is what I call targeted Botox, which is using less Botox to get the same effect. So if you think about watering a tree, you can use more water to water the leaves and the branches, or you could use less water to water the trunk and the roots. And that's more my style because I don't like injections any more than anybody else. And why inject more than what you need? The other thing is, is that neurologists are frequently using Botox as a as a treatment. I am using actually Botox as a test because I'm using surgery as a treatment. Now we have done studies where compared, we, we compared targeted Botox initially used for diagnostic purposes, but later on you could transition that to therapeutic Botox. Again, less injections, less Botox, but good effect. And we compared that effect to surgery. Um, and we actually found that surgery was more efficacious than targeted Botox. The target of Botox was still a very legitimate option. And so for some patients who uh, don't want surgery or can't get insur insurance to cover their surgery or can't take the time off for surgery and its recovery period uh, or have medical problems that preclude them from being optimal candidates. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. And they say, what other options do you have for me? One of the options is targeted Botox. And I have found, and we've even published long-term use of targeted Botox is efficacious. Now, less than 5% of patients get antibodies to Botox that would render it um, less effective or ineffective. I personally haven't seen it in my clinical practice, even though it's been published that people can develop antibodies to Botox. But I have found that even in my long-term patients, the same amount of Botox does not give less effect and more Botox is not needed to get the same effect. In other words, you can put them on a regimen if that's your intent to treat with targeted Botox, and it seems to be just fine over time. The upside is, is that it's the needle and not the knife. The downside is, is you're going to be best friends with that patient forever because they're going to come to see you every three months because Botox only lasts three months. So, you know, you, you have a long haul there. And actually, Gyron even uh, published a, a paper saying that the surgery pays for itself after two years because you don't have to keep coming back for treatment, whether it's medications, Botox, et cetera. We published a paper on that as well. This brings me to my next question, which is if a patient has multiple trigger points, how would you manage them in terms of your Botox and your surgery algorithm? So, you know, whether patients come from near or far, efficiency is key. So I like to work with my neurologists and on referral, I get the paperwork in advance. And in some cases, we're able to get pre-authorization for nerve blocks and Botox injection, again, used for diagnostic purposes before the patient even shows up for their first visit. And so, you know, I, they have the official ICD-10 diagnosis by the neurologist. They have the documentation of everything that's been tried and failed, et cetera. And so when they come in, patients want to get started right away. So I like to use, and we've published on this too, you know, multiple different modalities to diagnose trigger sites. Uh, the first one is a good history, otherwise known as constellation of symptoms. Um, the second one is a physical exam. The physical exam could include a Doppler test. So there are some trigger sites that have as main sources of compression an intertwining or intersection of a blood vessel and a nerve. So for instance, like in the auriculotemporal region, it is 
the auricular temporal nerve and the superficial temporal artery or a branch of the superficial temporal artery. So if a patient could use a single index finger to point to where their headache pain usually starts, and you have to ask them with a finger, not their palm or their hand, a finger that's very precise. And of course, patients can do this because they have lived with this pain for so long. They know where this, this pain is. They know where the epicenter is the vast majority of the time. And you give them a little handheld Doppler in the clinic and you ask them, just gently put that probe on your temple where it hurts. Almost invariably, you'll hear a Doppler sound underneath that. And again, that gives you good indication that that's the intersection point of the nerve in the vessel. And you can design a surgery to address that. So to diagnose these patients, history, physical, Doppler, nerve blocks, Botox, and sometimes CT scans, which I use for face and sinuses and nose related stuff. So using all of those tools and tricks, you use that to figure out where trigger sites are. So to answer your question, in patients who have multiple trigger sites, I like to investigate them one trigger site at a time. Because if they come in and you start injecting every place with, let's say, Botox, okay, let's say that they come back to see you and their headaches are completely gone. Let's say you injected the front, the temple, and the neck all at the same time. And they came back to see you. And let's just say optimal situation. They say, Dr. Janice, this has been great. I've had zero migraines in the last month. You know, this is wonderful. Where do I sign up? What are you going to sign them up for? Which one is it? Right. You know, because was it the, was it the periorbital trigger site that you injected? Was it the temporal site that you injected as well? Was it the neck? Was it all of them? Was it one of them? Was it two of them? I mean, for convenience, that's great. For granularity, that's that's more difficult. And don't forget that ultimately, since we're driving towards surgery, we don't want to offer unnecessary surgery. We don't want to be wrong, you know? So that's why sometimes it does take multiple visits, depending on the situation. The lowest I've ever had was one, one and done, okay? But, you know, oftentimes it may take two, sometimes three, but you may need to see the patient back and perform some of these tests because in patients who have multiple trigger sites, you want to be sure that you identify those trigger sites so you can offer specific surgical procedures for those. So let me give you an example. Let's pretend Susan is walking through the door and she has temporal and neck problems. So you inject, let's say the temple after a a month or two, she comes back, says everything looks great, feels great. I'm doing great. Then you inject the neck. And she also says that you know, it worked. Would you address both of them in the same surgery? So I used to go through the diagnostic workup, get all the trigger sites diagnosed, and then offer one surgery. Okay. However, in some patients, that can be several nerves. And that could be a long surgery and uh, a longer recovery And so my goal these days, and I've been doing this now for several years this way, is I like every surgery to be an outpatient surgery, and I like to stage them. So in the example that you gave, that's a short enough surgery. If let's say it was just auricular temporal and the neck, I would actually address those together. But let's say that they had uh, superorbital, supertrochlear, zygomaticotemporal, auriculotemporal, greater occipital. I mean, now we're like naming like around the world nerves, right? So I would divide it up by position. So what nerves can I address with the patient in a supine position? 
and what nerves can I address with the patient prone? And I would break it up into two stages and I would perform each stage. Uh, I would do it three months apart and I would not have to flip-flop. You know, I would just do, here's all the prones and here's all the supines. And that's how I would divide it up these days to keep the operations more bite-sized and also outpatient and also more tolerable to the patient population. Awesome. Is there in this algorithm of, you know, Botox and, and surgery, is there any role for nerve blocks? Yeah. So I use nerve blocks for diagnostic purposes, but not therapeutic purposes. I'm not saying that they can't be used for therapeutic purposes, but again, my goal as a surgeon is to see who would benefit from surgery. And so my nerve blocks are 1% lidocaine. There's nothing fancy in it. I don't use high volume. It's targeted approach. We know where the nerves are. We're plastic surgeons. You know, we've done a lot of anatomical studies. So we know where the pain is coming from because the patient can relate that to us both verbally and with their finger. The most important question is where does the pain start? Jay Austin and his group in Boston published a really nice article on the use of drawings. And so they have patients, you know, they're given like, they they basically look like heads, you know, uh, drawings of heads that patients can mark an X where the maximum pain starts and an arrow to describe where it goes from and to. And you could use those drawings and their stories and their index finger and put it all together and you can figure out where you want to block with a nerve block. So when I use nerve blocks, I'm just using plain lidocaine and using that to diagnose a trigger site. There are other people out there who are using nerve blocks, usually mixed with other substances, most commonly steroids, for instance, as more of a longer term therapeutic treatment. But again, my goal is not to do serial nerve blocks. My goal is to diagnose trigger sites and then operate on them. So you do it close to surgery or do you do it as far as along with the trying to identify the trigger point? For nerve blocks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I use nerve blocks in the clinic setting. I don't do it on the day of surgery, like preoperatively. You know, the day of surgery is just to execute the plan. I'm not doing any more diagnosing on the day of surgery. The only thing I do on the day of surgery diagnostically is Doppler. So I will... Okay. You know, in in those trigger sites that I can help diagnose with a Doppler test. Again, for instance, let's say the auricular temporal, because we're using the Doppler to pick up the superficial temporal vessels. I frequently will diagnose them in clinic. I'll give them an indelible marker to take home with them. And then I advise them that the night before surgery, while they're in the comfort of their own home, then they're not stressed by like having to go back to the operating room and they can really think about this mark on their own head with an X, with that marker, where the pain hurts the most in their temple. And then the day of surgery, they, when I see them preoperatively in person, they will have an X on their head or, you know, bilateral two X's, what have you. I will use a bedside handheld Doppler to confirm that we're in the right place by listening for that sound over their X. If I can't hear it, then I'm not going to find a blood vessel underneath it. You got to make sure you're not pressing too hard, right? If you step on a garden hose too hard, you're going to obstruct the flow of water in the garden hose. So the goal is, is just to kind of put your foot on the hose without stomping on it. So, you know, don't press too hard with the Doppler, but just gently rest it on top of the X and make sure you can confirm a Doppler sound. 
if you don't have a Doppler sound, then you need to spend some time with the patient before going back to the operating room to be sure that you know where X really marks the spot. Because again, you want to be precise with your surgery. That makes sense. Have you seen any reoccurrences after surgery? Yeah, you know, I've seen reoccurrences. It's interesting. I've seen rare reoccurrences in the same place. The reoccurrences in the same place have been explainable, at least in my experience, by some event. So like, I'll give you an example. I remember one woman that I treated in Dallas that I operated on her neck. Her headaches went completely away after surgery. They stayed away. And then years later, I think it was three years later, she unfortunately got rear-ended in a car accident and suffered whiplash and her pain came back. Well, that wasn't a failure of the operation as much as it was a defined discrete event that likely re-traumatized the nerves. And that was the reason for the recurrence. But sometimes what I have seen, and this is the more often situation, is that you'll operate in the diagnosed trigger sites. And then after surgery, once those have been addressed, patients may have pain in other trigger sites that they didn't tell you about beforehand. And one of two things happened in that situation. Number one, they had a dominant trigger site. You know, the bonfire was blazing out of control over here. And they didn't realize that there was another little campfire going on over there because the bonfire was just so big and and hot that they just didn't even realize what was happening at the time. Then you put the bonfire out and then later on they come to realize, oh, wait a minute, what's this going on over here? So that's one of the ways that I, I envision this is explained. The other is, is sometimes I, I don't know how to explain this, but it seems like sometimes the body uh, almost tries to develop detours around what you're doing. And I have seen, again, more often new trigger sites develop elsewhere where the patient did not bring that to your attention before, but it's pretty rare to see a recurrence. And I'm assuming in those situations, it's just the start of the algorithm all over again, right? Go through the Botox, see if the trigger and all that yep, stuff. You just start that. start from the beginning. You know, I mean, again, the holy grail here is, is that you can eliminate pain. And in some patients, that's possible. And again, there's been many studies to show that. But in also many patients, you can get a significant reduction in either frequency, intensity, duration. In some cases, you have some of these difficult to quantify things like quality of life, which we're getting better instruments uh, to do. But how do you document when, like I remember another patient, you know, she would go on hikes with her family every year to the same mountain. And every year she gets to a certain altitude and her headaches get triggered because altitude was one of her triggers. And so she'd set up kind of like this little base camp there, basically. And the rest of the family would go on up the mountain and they would summit and then come back down and get her on the way back down. But after surgery, then she was actually for the first time able to take that whole trip with her family. Like, how do you quantify that? You know, so you have a lot of these stories or, you know, some patients who are used to getting headaches every day or every other day, and all of a sudden they have a streak of two weeks without headaches, you know, when they get injected with something or, or after surgery, they get less headaches, although it's not zero, let's say it's 50% less, let's say it's 80% less, that's still significant improvement. And so again, these patients have tried and failed other things. So some of these patients say, I don't care if you give me 10% improvement, anything's better than what I've got. Now we're not shooting for 10%. That's a low bar, but you know, if you can help these patients, anything matters. 
And one other question regarding that patient that you, in terms of the reoccurrence that you said may have activated their trigger, their secondary trigger sites. Have you noticed a trend in terms of time frame when that usually you're kind of expecting if there's going to be a recurrence to show up like within a year, within three years, or is it kind of all over the place? Yeah. So I tell my patients that I don't even judge the success or failure of the operation until we're at least three months out. Uh, we obviously poke the bear, stir up the bees in the beehive. I mean, here we've got nerves that don't like being pinched, irritated, compressed, or entrapped. And we're doing surgery on them, which creates a natural inflammation that occurs. And we're moving them around. We're manipulating them. Even atraumatically, you're still manipulating them. So I can never, in the recovery room, verify a success or failure because if a patient wakes up with no pain at all, I do administer local anesthesia during the operation. So how do I know it's not that? What if they wake up with a mind-splitting headache? They just had surgery. They just had nerve surgery. So does that represent a failure or was that because, again, you poked the bear? From a wound healing standpoint, I like to wait till we are well past, we're basically into the third phase of wound healing, the remodeling phase where we have no inflammation in the area, everything has subsided, and now we can judge the success or failure of the operation three months. That being said, the real quality results, uh, I don't judge anybody as final until they're at least a year out from surgery. And that's what's discussed in many, many articles is what is the success rate when you're at least a year out? Um, Gyron has uh, published uh, a beautiful paper on long-term outcomes. As a matter of fact, five-year outcomes. And anecdotally, we all know because it has been published, but there's there's longer-term outcome than that. My own practice has longer-term outcome. Patients have scientific evidence that, that this lasts. One of the arguments, if you will, that has been used against this surgery is that even in a sham surgery study that was performed by Gyron, that uh, there was placebo effect. So is there a placebo effect to surgery? That's answered with these long-term studies because what placebo effect in medicine, like anywhere in medicine, any field, any specialty, any subspecialty, what placebo effect do you know last five years or more? That's the refute, if you will, to that argument. For those who suggest that this is just placebo effect, the answer is, is placebo doesn't last that long. Where's the results to the surgery do or can? And then what's the average age range of patients that come see you? And do you have an age limit on who you offer your surgery to? My youngest that I've ever operated on was 14. The oldest that I operated on, I think was maybe 80. So as long as they are healthy enough to undergo surgery, then they are a potential candidate in my book as long as we can diagnose discrete trigger sites. And insurance coverage can probably be a completely separate podcast episode on its own. So we're not going to get too much into it, but I do have one question. Sure. What percentage of your patients are covered by insurance versus self-pay? It's a great question. It does depend on state and it does depend on carrier. And it also depends on time. So when I first started doing this back in 02, 03, this was a long time ago. Uh, there weren't many people doing this at all. And this was uniformly not covered by any insurance for any reason. Clearly things have changed in the last 20 years. And now I'd say my batting average is maybe 50%, if I had to guess. 
Again, that's the collective batting average. Certain carriers have higher, certain carriers have lower. What we have in our favor is that there's 20 years of scientific evidence, good levels of evidence, published peer-reviewed papers. There's a position statement that came out from ASPS, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, in 2018, where they assembled a, an independent committee of folks. They looked at all the evidence, and they put out a publicly facing document. It's actually available on the website uh, for your readers or listeners that want to go to it and and, uh, and check it out. And it's a position statement that endorses this as a legitimate treatment, something that I think everybody should be aware of because when you're fighting that battle with insurance companies, it sure is helpful to provide a position statement by the largest organized plastic surgery organization in the world that endorses this. That makes sense. What do you see next or what do you foresee for the future of migraine and nerve decompression surgery? The past has been refinement of understanding of anatomy and technique. The original ways that we were doing things is not the way that we're doing it right now entirely. Some of it is, some of it is not, a lot of it is not. So by looking at our own results and trying to figure out how to get the best possible outcome for every patient. We constantly have been going back and reevaluating the anatomy and saying, what did we miss? When, when Gyron came out with his paper 2005, which at that time, the comprehensive surgical treatment of migraines was like the paper on, on the subject, the average improvement for the greater occipital nerve is like 62%. And so the question was, is how do you make that higher? And so one of the answers is, is well, like think about it like carpal tunnel. If you take your in-service exam or your written uh, boards and the question gets asked, what's the most common reason for recurrent carpal tunnel syndrome? The answer is incomplete release, right? You just didn't release the whole thing. So you have to go back and make sure that you did so. So we did the same in, in migraine surgery or nerve decompression surgery for headaches. We looked at our results and we said, well, how do we improve those results. And the way that we did that was going back to the anatomy lab and finding out if we really completely decompressed the nerve or were there pinch points that we just didn't anatomically understand or appreciate. The future is more of that, more anatomical refinement, better patient selection, which patients a priori before you take the operating room, do we feel like we have a good chance of helping and which ones do we not have a good chance of helping? Do, you, do we even offer uh, surgery as an option in these patients? And most of all, how do we actually re, redefine or refine uh, what we're treating? You know, historically, we've been calling these, you know, surgical treatment of migraine headaches. But again, there's overlap of symptoms. You, really, what we're better understanding now is that some patients have nerve compression. Now, why that is? we're still figuring that out. But nerve decompression can help those patients whose pain is from nerve compression. So better understanding the diagnosis and better refinements in the treatment. Well, thank you, Professor Janice, for being here today and helping us all get a better grasp on migraines and nerve decompression surgery. Any final thoughts for everyone? And maybe some more information about the Migraine Surgery Society and how residents and fellows can get involved? Yeah. Final thoughts are number one, thank you for having me. Number two, just remember whether it's your own quest, you know, through plastic surgery, as you uh, try to further your career or help your patients, like I said at the beginning, 
uh, be open-minded, have choice, have opportunity, take advantage of opportunity, whether you're talking about leadership or a nerve decompression surgery for headaches, it's really the same thing here because if you don't recognize opportunities when they're in front of you, when you have a fork in the road, if you don't take advantage of these opportunities, you may not be able to help as many patients as you otherwise could. You have the knowledge, you have the understanding, you have the knowledge of the anatomy, you have the knowledge of the techniques. If you want to help these patients and they're in every city, in every community across the country and across the world, then become more familiar with this because this is in the plastic surgery wheelhouse. The biggest issue is partnering with a neurologist, you know, that you can collaborate with. And I can tell you, having done this in two different major cities now, it is possible. It's not impossible. And I have given you some thoughts and uh, insights on how maybe to start that conversation with your neurologist, but ultimately your patients are the ones who benefit. And I'm so glad that your listeners are listening to this today, because whether you're a surgeon or a patient, this is a very legitimate option for treatment. Thank you again. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate and review us. We will continue bringing you weekly episodes addressing your life and education of plastic surgery. Follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to get in the loop.